Today on The Nose, we'll be talking about The Watchmen on HBO, which feels to me like postmodernism on steroids. It combines hidden parts of America's black history uh, with, I don't know, recreations of the future and the present and uh, blendings of tone and, of course, a comic book mythology. So we'll be talking about that and whether it's okay to watch little kids, watch scary movies, and we'll be not exactly saying goodbye to John Dankosky. I don't think this is goodbye, but it's the last time he'll be on these airwaves in this particular capacity. And I'll leave it at that. It's hard to say goodbye under any circumstances. The Things We Do for Love. Um, all right. That is a, quote, <laughs> song, unquote, by Rush. Uh, and the reason that we're playing it is that John Dankosky is appearing on our show today. It is his last time on this show, at least in this certain capacity. I hope it's not really his last time on this show. Uh, but um, Can I sing in falsetto behind you? No, is you cannot. A- you yes, can, there's yes, a lot of may. things I'm willing to do. let you do on your last day. <laughs> and that's probably not one of them. Um, but this is song by Rush. This is the kind of uh, music that uh, John grew up liking and has unfortunately never completely outgrown. So, uh, so we're just doing things to make him happy because everybody should have a day where people do things to make them happy. Uh, Thank you, Carl. Sam Hatch also on the show and also very enthusiastic about the Rush. Gigantic Rush fan. Yeah, that yeah. somehow it does Thank not you. surprise me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Without really elaborating uh, what I mean by that. That's yeah. anyway. Sam Hatch co-hosts the Culture Dogs on Sunday nights. WWUH, I believe it's 8 p.m. Sunday night. Uh, Carolyn Payne I, does not like Rush and does not like most of the things that happen <laughs> on this show every time she appears on it. Nonetheless, she comes back. Uh, she is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder and director and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. They'll be doing their uh, very unusual nutcracker, I'm sure, again this season. We'll be talking about that later as we go along. As long as we're mentioning things that are happening, John, Des- John Dankosky on November 22nd is moderating the Connecticut Forum. The topic is climate crisis, and he will be talking about climate change and what we can do about it with Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, Gina McCarthy, uh, and David Wallace-Wells. And then also in December, over two weekends leading up to Christmas, Mr. Dankosky will be the narrator for a program of seasonal music called Christmas Angelicus. Uh, It's a concert by the joint choirs of Chorus Angelicus and Gaudiamus and takes place at beautiful cathedrals all around Litchfield and Hartford counties. And then he and Carolyn are appearing in a seasonal commercial for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I think they're the, the Green and red peanut butter cups, you know. Um, Only if it has that soft chocolate around it. Soft chocolate, chocolate. yes, exactly. You wouldn't believe the conversations (laughs) taking place right before we went on the air. Um, And uh, also, I was looking for plugging stuff. The the Colin McEnroe Show 10th anniversary party is coming up. It's Wednesday, November 13th. Black Eyed Sally's tickets are 25 bucks. That also gets you like a free drink and probably some Black Eyed Sally's food. Uh, And if you go to WNPR.org, our basic homepage there, you can see how to get those tickets. All right. Later on the show, we're going to talk about The Watchmen. 
which is HBO's new uh, series. It's sort of an ad- adaptation, sort of a sequel to an existing piece of intellectual property. Sam Hatch will have to explain the whole thing, <laughs> which he will. Sure. Uh, but, but first of all, we are uh, going to talk about um, something else. We're going to talk about an essay by Jason Zinneman in the New York Times. He usually writes about comedy. Uh, it's called, I Showed My Seven-Year-Old Jaws, and I Regret Nothing. And he, that's not all he did. He just showed uh, uh, other really, really scary movies to his uh, very young child, including, I believe, at the age of 10, Alien, a movie we were talking about yesterday, <laughs> which is a very scary movie. Even if you add a zero to that child's age, it's still a really scary movie. So that kind of got us going and talking and thinking about all this and, and, and sort of you know when is the right time to see what and how that's affected us and or in my case, I'll probably be talking more about my son than about me. Uh, but uh, John, why don't you get us going here? So tell us how you, you wanted to, to actually tell a story more about your wife, Jen, than about well, you, right? Well, yeah. So both Jen and I, for our very first movie, both saw fairly age-inappropriate movies. Mine was age inappropriate. It was the um, remake of King Kong in the 1970s yes. uh, with Jessica Lange. And it's a really, it's a terrible movie, but there's some there's some frightening sequences that kind of s- stuck with me. My, my father took me and it was one of those grand old movie theaters. And I remember the experience a lot. My sister, however, or my sister, my wife had her sister take her to see Jaws when she was very, very young. And that was because um, her mom worked in a movie theater. And so she would just go see everything. And her sister was older, and she took her to see this incredibly frightening movie. And the lasting impact on her was that she loves horror movies. She just loves them. She, she can't get enough of them. And she's, I think that that early experience kind of helped to form something in her that, that loves that, that kind of horror. My mother was a uh, – she liked scary movies when she was growing up in rural Massachusetts. And she went to see the original King Kong in 1933 at a movie theater and then was unable to walk home um, <laughs> and had to call her father uh, who was really – there were like five kids in the family and like – picking up a scared girl who had probably defied parental <laughs> orders and gone to see this scary movie in the first place and now was unable to walk home, was not high on his list of things he wanted to do. Of that course. I so, uh, <laughs> didn't teach her any lessons. So, yeah, I think we all have little things to say about this. Sam, I feel like... <laughs> Where to begin, I, almost, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like this is like maybe a whole show uh, on, on, on inappropriate movies you've seen at various times in and, your life. And yeah, I, I also had access to a parent that was a manager of a video store because <laughs> I grew up in this land where it, there were the avenues were you know expanded so greatly from just being able to you know take your kids out to see a film in the theaters that's inappropriate. Now I could also have the opportunity to catch a glimpse of a videotape that's playing in a corner or perhaps something was playing on HBO and uh, I was I was kind of reminiscing about this these moments where something would be on the television and my parents were in the room and I would actively pretend that they were not in the room and they would do the same likewise and there would be this kind of unspoken agreement of this is happening don't tell anybody about it but yeah you're watching Caddyshack now um, but I remember actively arguing with my my dad that I should be allowed to go see Alien in the theaters. And uh, that was one of the rare occasions when he shut that down. Uh, but I saw A Clockwork Orange a little too young. And, <laughs> a Clockwork uh, Orange is actually X-rated, we should say. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, not, NC-17 a, not a film in eight, for an eight-year-old. Yeah. And uh, I, do, I do recall being screened uh, Phantasm and Halloween by – 
these kids that were um, my, my dad was dating this woman and she you know decided to use the videotape babysitter and slapped in a copy of Phantasm yeah, and I those kids. I survived it and then her <laughs> kids started telling these tales about oh well Sam loves horror movies uh, I survived horror movies at the time and and then I saw Halloween through my fingertips and she left the room and then yeah that caused my love of horror films so. Yeah. Uh, it has shaped me in some way. Right. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. We should say Sam is currently serving a life sentence. We are able to, through a, you know <laughs> arrangement with the Department of Corrections, to get him to come. Yeah, the remote signal sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I. You know, you've grown up to be a gentle and jolly person. As exactly far as I right. I smile a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's no guarantee. <laughs> no, yeah, that does not. I saw Joker. That argument. <laughs> I saw Joker. That guarantees ah, nothing. You guys are on to me. So I have no. I have no idea what you're going to come out of you in the next. <laughs> <laughs> 30 seconds, as usual. Yeah. yeah. So I actually loved horror movies as a child. And uh, I think I started out with, like, gateway to horror films, like Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice. And then it kind of opened up. Uh, I, I think that some the creepier the movie, the more I liked it as a kid. And my parents were really, they were into it. Like, we saw Jaws as a family. And that was probably pretty scarring because we vacationed on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> and, you know, my, my dad would always be like, this is where Jaws lives. Like, don't do it. <laughs> it was like they were, like, egging on the terror. Um, it's where Jaws summers, actually. That's right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, so... I, I kind of grew up in a household without a ton of a ton of rules. Like we were, my parents were pretty liberal about what we watched and what we would discuss. Uh, but I, I do remember. So when I was little, like I went to a day camp and we were singing that song from Greece. We go together, and I wanted to see Greece, and I was probably about like six. But that was the one. Like I, I had seen, you know, Jaws and. Beatles used to all this stuff, and my mom didn't want me to see Grease. No, well, what was the rationale? Why not Grease? Well, she didn't want to. She was afraid that, like, r- when Rizzo has the pregnancy scare, she didn't want to have oh. to have that conversation. But meanwhile, watching somebody like have their eyes pulled out of their head or something was totally fine. Yeah, it's it, a very standard bit of, uh, of right. So to me, it was like fascinating exactly. that that was where she was drawing a line. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, but I, I think that what she probably could have said is, just so you understand, the woman playing Rizzo is 45 years old right now, which, <laughs> which is why she's she probably shouldn't have children at this moment. But anyway, yes. Yeah, seriously. Well, the funny thing is, is, so then, like, I, you know, I won the argument or I snuck off and watched it at a friend's house. However, whatever happened, I think probably the latter. I didn't even understand the scene. I was six. You know, and it was funny. And meanwhile, I was telling Sam, like, literally right around that time, my parents had rented Naked Gun. And let us watch that. And he's literally dressed as a giant condom. So that was okay. Giant condom, okay. High school pregnancy scare, no. Not okay. Horror movies, thumbs up. So not sure. (laughs) Did did anybody else besides me um, have the experience of – and I'm pleased to say that I interviewed William Friedkin one time and he had the exact same experience, which is the first few times I sat in a dark movie theater and watched anything on the screen, I was completely terrified. Oh, yeah. And there's something just very frightening when you're a little kid. About sitting in a dark – I saw The Nutty Professor with Jerry Lewis and I was <laughs> frightened out of my wits. Well, one of the reasons that I, I felt that that, ori- that – not original, that 1970s King Kong, the first film that I saw with my father in the theater was so scary is there's just – there's one scene early on when there's kind of a tribal dance going on and it's the sort of – uh, jump into a frame that happens a lot in 3D movies these days. Yeah. This was not, of course, a 3D movie. And someone just sort of jumps in front with a, with a mask. And I thought that that was the most horrifying thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. But it was because I was far too young to be sitting in that theater <laughs> trying to take all that stuff in. But yeah, just being there. And everything's on a huge scale. 
you used to a little tiny television. I mean, our television was a 13-inch black and white television. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're taking in more information. I mean, I will now say that, I mean, my son watched a lot of really inappropriate stuff. Some of that was my fault. Some of it was his mom's fault. Uh, I would like to bring up the fact that she wanted to watch over and over again the VHS uh, of Last of the Mohegans, mainly in order to see Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis, uh, you know, shirtless or partly shirtless. I will was, find you. Yeah, and that was exactly. So she wanted that. <laughs> And he liked all the really fairly violent things, including one. So I used to run in and fast forward through things that I didn't think he should be seeing. And then that turned into, hey, dad, they're about to burn Duncan now. Do you want to come (laughs) in and fast forward? (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I saw a certain kind of pointlessness to what I was doing. Um, But I don't know. It's kind of weird because it's like there's – I I think a lot of parents do exactly what your parents – your parents – Carolyn weren't that consistent apparently, but you know that the notion of people giving each other pleasure is much more terrifying than the notion of people shooting each other. Um, well, I think with like horror movies, you know, they it they felt like this isn't like real. There wasn't it wasn't going to have to like lead to a discussion of something that they thought maybe we weren't old enough to handle. Although, I mean, letting your kids watch like we watched like Halloween and the Exorcist like we really we my my brother and I really grew up watching a ton of weird scary movies and I I don't understand why what the disc like I the only thing I can reason and we've never discussed this as a family uh, maybe this will be good Thanksgiving table discussion <laughs> but I think that it was that you know they're they're a separation from reality that they were willing to like let us live in this horror fantasy world but not wanting to like have a discussion with these things with other things with your six-year-old and I can attest to the awkwardness of sitting in a room with your parents while some sort of sexual content plays on the screen uh, it never goes away because I had the delight of watching Itumama Tambien for the first time with my mom oh. uh, you don't on a Sunday five night in. And yeah. Yeah. five minutes in yeah. Movie. I was, it's a real family I was film. like, can I somehow just change the channel and walk silently out of this room? <laughs> yeah, I actually had the, that experience with Clockwork Orange with my parents, sitting and watching on videotape and thinking this will be an okay movie viewing experience, and very quickly thinking, oh my goodness. I was wrong. Yeah, no, this was a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea. There was, of course, a tradition which many of us experienced where our parents would take us to the drive in movies and put us in the back of the station wagon with sleeping materials there. The yes. understanding being that we would then go to sleep, you know, which kids don't necessarily do with any reliability. So I did see In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger <laughs> that way. And then I went home. I was, I believe, 12 or 11. And I got the book. There was a book. And I read that too. And I remember at one point looking up and neighbors were standing around. And I said, Mom, what's an abortionist? And she's <laughs> the whole In the Heat of the Night thing just sort of stopped right there. The book was taken away. And I learned a different A word from uh, the – was it the China Syndrome with Michael Douglas uh, oh, yeah. at the old Bloomfield uh, Twin 99-cent theaters. Yeah. Yeah, he dropped a, a, a bone mow there and I, uh, I delightfully uh, – Latched onto it, spread it around on the uh, the playground the next day at school, and uh, yeah, apparently yeah, the other parents love that sort of thing. Yeah, they they like, where did this word come from? <laughs> All right, well, uh, so I don't think we have any wisdom to impart about this topic, other than nope. you know, go go with your instincts and also understand that they are probably wrong. Um, we're going to go out of the, this uh, segment with a message from our own Kion Wolf. If it wasn't for John Dankowski, I would not be working here. Thirteen years ago, he spotted me answering phones for the fun drive, and after I assaulted him with questions, he offered me an internship, and now here we are, honoring his contributions to Connecticut Public Radio. 
One of my favorite parts of the day with John is when we would get together before his show to record the minute-long preview of the show that was coming up, and we call that the billboard. He would come in and warm up by talking to me, catching up, (laughs) but a lot of times he would start singing. Here is a lovingly edited montage. (laughs) Some days this is the song in in your head. Ready? Here I go again on my own. Elvira. Was it the Oak Ridge Boys? I just wrote a presidential candidate theme song. It's all timpani. Boom, boom, boom. Bum, 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 bum. But the bump, bump, bum, 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 bum. I always thought that was the good part. It's just the nearness of you. It's a little high for me. It's just the nearness of you. <laughs> this is where we live. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this usually doesn't happen. Um, coming up on tomorrow's show, we'll, we'll see if it gets better. A new PBS film, Journey uh, of the Universe, invites viewers. <laughs> Here's what's happening. Oh, my God. Uh, periodically, we have technical issues in the show. <laughs> And today, nothing's going right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to, first of all, tell you what's on tomorrow's show. A new PBS film called Journey of the Universe invites viewers to become travelers on a journey that explores the origins of the universe, the emergence of life, and the rise of humans. We're going to talk to producer Mary Evelyn Tucker about the human connection with the Earth and the cosmos. And we'll talk to a Fairfield University professor who got a grant to study chaos theory, which I think I know something about. Uh, Could the gentle flap of a butterfly wing in China cause a public radio program to completely fail in Connecticut? We can find out tomorrow where we live, on air and online. Today we're trying to talk about sustainable fisheries in the program. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We could have been nice. We could have had a nice last show, but that just didn't really seem like it was very appropriate. So... um, All right, so uh, John Dankowski is here with us today. So is Sam Hatch, and so is Carolyn Payne. That was not a clip from The Watchmen. We're going to play a clip from The Watchmen in just a second. Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons was originally published as a 12-issue maxi-series by DC Comics in 86 and 87, then collected into a graphic novel, uh, I think in 87. Zack Snyder made a feature length uh, and then some, uh, according to to Jonathan McNichol, um, a version of it. Uh, And now uh, Damon Lindelof, he of Lost, he of The Leftover, is doing an HBO series, which is sort of a sequel, I think, sort of, to where the original franchise kind of ended. Two episodes have aired so far. We'll play a little clip here. Uh, I won't say much about it until maybe afterwards. If you recognize some voices here, you might recognize the voice of Don Johnson, which you have not heard in a while, probably, Don Johnson's voice, and um, epic character actor Tim Blake Nelson, uh, who was, of course, born probably to be in something like this. Uh, You'll hear some other voices as well, and then we'll to explain it to you afterwards. Cavalry's back. Three years of peace, and we convinced ourselves that they were gone. But they were just hibernating. Good thing we know where their caves are. So roll into Nixonville and round them up and drag their asses into the pod for interrogation. One of them's going to give up the shooter. Warren's three weapons hot? We are. Article four. Panda, buzz out the guns. 
an emergency 24-hour release of deadly weapons can be authorized only if a majority of the police force believe their lives are under direct, immediate threat. LG, you believe your life is under direct and immediate threat? Yes, I do. What about you, Red? Absolutely. Firearms release is authorized. Chief, you're making a mistake. Yeah, well, it's my funeral. Quis custodiat ipsos custodes? All right, so Carolyn, maybe you'd like to explain uh, the. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, <laughs> the panic that just went through. I know the look on her face. The look on her face. Look on her face. I was going to go a little bit longer, but I just thought, <laughs> this is this is upsetting her. Um, so, uh, well, first of all, we just say that what you're actually hearing is a police force set in the, I guess, not too distant future, uh, in a world that does not exist and probably cannot exist. Uh, Robert Redford, for example, is president of the United States. And Nixon is some kind of acclaimed ex-president. Um, squid occasionally rain from the sky. Uh, and uh, the police are, at least in this uh, Oklahoma area of Oklahoma, are under some kind of um, uh, rule that says that they can't carry or use firearms. Firearms has to have to be unlocked for them, even if in their only if they're in a very dangerous situation and feel that their life is in danger. So this white supremacist group appears to be back in business. And there's the discussion you hear is whether they can use their firearms now. And of course, they're saying that they can't. All right, so. I did that part. So Sam, <laughs> you forgot to mention the guy named Panda is is literally wearing a giant, very dirtied panda head. Right. Everything, almost everything, is <laughs> so really the, there's dirty. a weirdness. In yeah, it. there's a lot of dirty things in in there. Um, and so um, I don't know, Sam. Is there some way you can sort of get us going here? Sam has total command of this subject, I'll, and the rest of us have barely <laughs> partial command. I'll try to lay the groundwork okay. quickly, because uh, it is an adaptation, a sort of sequel. Damon Lindelof calls it a remix of the graphic novel, which in itself is densely layered. It's uh, a commentary on on superheroes, and it's deconstructivist, and it takes apart all these uh, archetypes, and it started with DC Comics gaining control of Charlton Comics, and Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons were going to kind of take these old characters and repurpose them. And the tale they started kind of concocting is this alternate reality in which superheroes really exist, and eventually uh, nuclear superheroes, and how that would affect people psychologically, how that would affect the politics. So yes, Nixon has handily won Vietnam. Vietnam is now our 51st state, and he's you know, reigned until Redford took over. So uh, yeah, there's a, this interesting... Uh, alternate universe that has since become a trope in, in science fiction uh, series and anime series from Japan, etc. Uh, but then it was a mystery graphic novel about this one character that got killed, and that wasn't enough. That character was also part of another superhero team from the 1930s and 40s. So the comic book is con- constantly bouncing back and forth between the 80s, 1984, and there's this huge Cold War, Paul lingering over everything. World War III is about to break out, and can superheroes stall that? What's going to happen? And uh, 
Yeah, it's it's really, really layered. So now you have this sequel that nobody was really asking for. Uh, there's been a couple sequels in comic book form, but Alan Moore has completely stepped away from the franchise and, and was disappointed in how DC Comics handled uh, his possession or uh, – you know his rights, and he since let Dave Gibbons you know handle everything, and uh, yeah. So Damon Lindelof uh, smartly decided to instead of just working with all the characters that were the prime uh, subjects of the graphic novel, he's created this own alternate 2019 in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, one of the most interesting things he's done so far is he's subverted the trope of the alternate universe by injecting all these things. That a lot of viewers will probably expect are invented, such as the second episode has uh, Germans in World War One dropping leaflets for black soldiers trying to convince them that you know they're fighting this purposeless war. The first episode opens strongly with the 1921 Tulsa race riots and, and then, yeah, the next day I'm seeing all these things on my Facebook feed about you – know, all of a sudden white people wake up and realize this was a thing because of the show. So it's interesting how he's working in real history here in a very – yeah fantastical alternate history show and it is – it's weird and it's strangely – the way it injects its weirdness comes out of nowhere sometimes and it, you almost forget about the alternate-ness uh, of the show until all of a sudden you know, a panda shows up in a, in a police <laughs> room or you know, someone you know, flies a, a giant magnet over someone's car and lifts it up into the sky. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. So this show has a lot of fans. They're spread out all over the place. We actually have a call coming in from Washington, D.C. right now from somebody who probably is a fan of the show just listening to this. Uh, what is your name, sir? Go ahead, sir. All right. Uh, Ralph Nader will be with you in one moment. Oh, okay. So we'll just come back to that then. All right. So he's not quite ready. <laughs> Apparently, he's very concerned about some of the sort of good liberties that have been taken with this, and there may be a consumer lawsuit coming forward. So um, <laughs> he's confused about the school. So are we getting ready for that? So, John, the way that history yeah. is kind of used here yes. uh, is, I mean, it really is interesting. I mean, some people would know maybe about the, the Tulsa massacre uh, going in, but I mean, the way that history and race uh, are the pervading tensions here is kind of interesting. It, it, I think it is very interesting. And I think that the, the hard thing for me to follow so far as someone who, who knew all the comic books and had some passing familiarity with it, then trying to think of what I'm supposed to get out of this show and then being bombarded early on with this historical document that is, as you say, so powerful, trying to figure out how that's going to play in, how, how invented history and real history are going to come together in this. Um, I, I've been having a hard time, frankly, through two episodes, figuring out the edges of it, like what I'm supposed to grab onto. Is, is this a real thing that I really care about or is this something that, that is very comic booky that I don't right. care about so much? And I think that it's unsettling, certainly. And I just worry that with all of this interesting stuff that is in here, that it's being lost a little bit, sort of slipping through my fingertips because I don't know what to hold on to, if that makes right. sense. <laughs> I think, by the way, I think we do have this guy, uh, Ralph, who wants to call in there. Uh, is this uh, Mr. Nader? Yes, Colin. Call me Ralph. Yeah, okay. So you have, did, you, <laughs> did you have something that you wanted to say uh, to uh, John Dankosky, yeah. of whom you greatly admire uh, here on his final appearance here on <laughs> – under these circumstances anyway? Well, it may be his final appearance, but he's so talented effortlessly uh, <laughs> as a journalist and an interviewer that I think it can be said that the best is yet to come for John. Right. The best is yet to come. You know, he, uh, he he's very curious about things. It's a good sign, you know, for a journalist. He's 
curious about trees, bugs, cats, and the American <laughs> Museum of Tort, Tort Law, the only one in the world, uh, in Winstead. And uh, and he also cares about the little guy, Colin. He, he tootles around in a mini Cooper. <laughs> right. First of all, I, what I remember about John most is when he's interviewing these evasive politicians and candidates, and he's so patiently persistent. And uh, I say to myself, how can not, he not lose his cool? I mean, they're always, you know, uh, trying to avoid answering the question, overriding the question. And he's he's very good at, at staying put because it's not like the way uh, Vice President Pence rolled over uh, Judy Woodruff on uh, uh, on the news hour the other day on the Ukraine and other mess. Right. So he's good that way. And he and he uh, he had civic activists on. He had he had specialists at Yale and UConn and Quinnipiac and other uh, places of research uh, who who never even get a voice on uh, radio. So we're going to miss him. And by the way, the best trio on state politics probably in the country, although I haven't made a survey, is in the wheelhouse <laughs> with you, Colin, and John, and Bill Curry. Yeah. And, uh, uh, there's never there's never a moment of pause with those three. Right. Uh, kind of an old white guy problem happening uh, yeah. there, but uh, <laughs> well, well, we'll take it. Ralph, thank you very much. Thank you for that. I, I, have, to, I have to say, and I'm, I'm sure I'll see Ralph again soon, he's my neighbor in Winstead, and there is nothing like coming home from a, a long day of interviewing politicians and getting there and seeing Ralph Nader sitting on your back porch with a glass of wine, my wife, you know, inviting him over or something. <laughs> this this does indeed change change everything when you when you have to sit there and, and can compete with Ralph for a little while longer. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your calling. Thanks in. for calling in, Ralph. <laughs> yeah, Say how to clear for much. Me. Uh, hey, Colin, yeah. that doesn't mean you can't have John on once in a while. No, no, uh, that's what we're hoping. Uh, <laughs> no, and I think also good. it would be a nice gesture on this day if you were to drop the lawsuit about him not raking his leaves. I know you're seeking injunct- <laughs> injunctive relief, but, you know, what the heck. Maybe this no, year. No, no. He, just... he believes in real compost. Oh, there we go. Yes. There we go. Well, anyway, maybe this year uh, drop the lawsuit. Thanks for calling in, sir. Okay, <laughs> audience. You, Ralph. All right. You're losing a good person. Okay. But get him back once in a while. All right. Uh, All right. Now back to the Watchmen. (laughs) Um, So, Carolyn, I mean, in a way, you know, in a way, some of the ways that John was talking about before we were uh, so so inspiringly interrupted. uh, It's sort of the things made to confuse you a little bit, right? You start with a little boy watching a black and white silent movie about a black marshal. This is the very first thing in the first episode. That uh, segues into this kind of sepia-tinted recreation of this horrible massacre that is a historical uh, reality, unfortunately. Uh, and, and from there, it goes to – I think two scenes later, we're watching an all-black cast musical version uh, of Oklahoma at a local community theater or something. I mean, as John was saying, figuring out exactly where to sort of – put the pin in the map and say, this is where we are right now. I mean, he, they're trying to confuse you a little bit. I was confused. They succeeded with me. <laughs> uh, for sure. So, I mean, I, the, the, the first episode, I have a new theory with, I think, all shows that I think I want to start watching like the second or third episode. And then you can always go back. But I find that first episodes of shows, they have so much ground they want to cover and they have so much that they're introducing and shoving at you that I think my new tactic with all things is to go in, to come in a little bit late. And if I'm interested, I'll go back and pick up the pieces. I wish I had done that with this show because uh, the first episode um, 
it, it, was, it was just so, it was a lot. I, yeah, yeah. There's a guy in a panda head. They're singing Oklahoma show tunes. They're, you know, there's these actual historical references and there's, you know, squid falling from the sky. And I'm just like, oh, my God, how am I ever going to put any of this together? Um, but Regina King uh, is. Who is really the star of the yes, show. And yeah, she's so great. She's a star. She's just, uh, she's to me, there are some actors. And this show also has Jeremy Irons, which is, he's another actor that. He and Regina King are actors that I am fascinated by. I'm fascinated by their choices. I'm fascinated by their faces. I'm fascinated with how they embody characters. Uh, and and you know that like old thing where an actor could be so good that you would like watch them read the telephone book. Mm-hmm. To me, the show proved that right. <laughs> with Regina King and Jeremy Irons. <laughs> right. I've been a big fan of Regina King since Southland and American Crime, but people find her in other places. My significant other loved her from Jerry Maguire. I believe my son loves her from Friday. Uh, so. Um, so uh, we, we're going to have to break here pretty fast here. But Sam, I, I don't know, as somebody who's imbued with all this stuff and, and loves all this stuff, so far, is the series working for you? It's it, The second episode, even more so than the first. But I'm, I'm still sitting in John's camp in that I'm, I'm waiting to see how this all kind of pulls together. And whereas the graphic novel had a central mystery to it that really kind of led you into its world, this one is, is throwing so much at the wall. And then the, the backstory is so dense. And then... Damon Lindelof is known for writing his own dense material. So it's, you know, multiple layers and orbs of denseness combining and uh, exploding. And uh, yeah, so it's the Regina King factor is really carrying me through uh, her and her husband and there's, Louis, just, Gossett, Louis Gossett Jr. in this very weird uh, out there role. Exactly. Well, I, and, I want to quickly say, just by way of a segue to the next thing, uh, is um, that um, the music is by the Nine, Nine Inch Nails yes. guys. The music's really, really interesting. The, co- the composed music very is really interesting. interesting. And then the found music is also very, very interesting. Uh, I, I could talk for t- 10 minutes about that. But instead uh, of that, uh, we need to play more of John Dankosky singing. This, this, once again, he and Kion Wolf had this little tradition of when he would go in to record what we call the billboard, which airs before the news uh, on all of our programs, uh, he would warm up in this way. It doesn't show signs of stopping, but I got some corn for popping. Russia probe, Russia probe, Russia probe. (laughs) There you go. My one and only love. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. He's so flat and he's some plain things. At home, drawing pictures of mountain tops with him on top, young son. Daddy didn't give attention. Oh, Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Give him two lips like roses and clover. And tell him that my lonely nights are over. I think that that's it. Okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way and erased it, um, <laughs> you'll quit your job someday, John, and we'll have that my blooper retirement reel. We'll be dedicating the new John Dankosky statue later today, just as soon as we finish jackhammering out the old Robert J. Lertzema fountain to make room for it. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ralph Nader. 
We'll be back on Monday with the scramble, which is changing its legal address to a swamp in the Florida Keys. And now, back to Colin. I'm going to read this cold like a pro, like a pro. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday, to, <laughs> can I make up a promo? Sure. Can I say the words written in front of me? Not a chance. <laughs> A segment outro. I wish there was coffee. What draws you to want to design skyscrapers? Because my clients asked me to do it. (laughs) 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 That's that's how we all all, we architects operate. (laughs) I've had that happen where I'm like, I'm sitting here talking to somebody, and you hear. Same member FDIC, and I said, "Fember, I've had six cups of coffee today, but that's clearly not enough." Just don't quit until you've tried everything, because you don't want to wake up eighty years old and say, "Boy, I wish I had tried that." It might be one little thing that clicks into place, and uh, I, I tried everything, and then finally I said, "Well, it's gone," and I'm convinced of that. And then I went on with my life because. It was what I did, not who I was. And I think it's important, excuse me, to keep that perspective. Let us not let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. Okay, that's all for now. And that's all for now. Um, We're here. I don't know how much Sam Hatch and uh, Carolyn Payne are going to get to talk the rest of the way. Oh, uh, God. It it is, in fact. uh, So we should say that Tucker Ives. Uh, a producer of where we live for many years and obviously an untrustworthy quizzling uh, <laughs> has uh, compiled all that stuff. Uh, and so, and we also, I don't know, we have a call coming oh, in. No. Let me just see what this is. Uh, no, no, we're not ready for that call yet. So <laughs> let's play instead a reminiscence by Lucy Nopithatchel. I often joke that John brought me back to civilization. More than a decade ago, I was working as a reporter in Florida, northern Florida, which is really southern Georgia. Before that, I had met John several years prior in Hartford when WMPR hosted this NPR member station training. John and I immediately connected over our alma mater, Duquesne University, and our love for the black and gold, the Stillers, the Pens, and the Buckos, of course. So when the job opened up at WMPR in 2006, I was thrilled when John hired me. This Pennsylvania girl couldn't wait to come back up north. John's more than a mentor to the many radio journalists you hear on the air in Connecticut and around the country. He's a decent man. He's been a good friend. Where am I going to go to get my Pittsburgh fix? It's not going to be the same without you here, John. All right. So uh, now we do definitely have a call. Uh, I can't read the name that's up on the board. It's a name. I don't know. Who is calling here? Who is on the line right now? This is Neil from Milford. Yeah, I don't don't think it is somehow. I think I do recognize uh, that voice. I recognize that voice. Neil, how are you doing? (laughs) <laughs> hey, John, Ned Lamont, where are you going? You're too young. I mean, look at McEnroe and I. We're going strong. Let's go. But, um, oh, I'm, not, I'm not retiring, uh, Governor. I'm not retiring. Don't worry. You're in a game. Um, but we had so much in common. I mean, I, um, I did a little radio journalism. We compared those notes. We taught at CCSU together on and off, which I greatly enjoyed. Uh, we both follow, followed the public discourse and made a little bit here in the state. And um, i got to say, you provided an amazing service here to this state for 25 years. 
I thank you very much for that, sir. I really do. And we, we did have a lot of fun at CCSU. We put on a couple of really interesting panels, did some stuff with Tom Foley, I remember, on stage. That was always a good time. And I don't know how you, you're enjoy, enjoying your new job, right? <laughs> what, are you, I, I, what is he doing now? I, I lost track. <laughs> oh, with, with Ned? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's got a job now. Okay, oh, it's good. Yeah. But you're, you're enjoying yeah. things, Governor? Uh, it's, I love the job. I mean, you can make a little difference every day, and it's um, you know, it's a privilege that people give me this opportunity to do it. And, That's um, right. Well, that, I, yeah. I, 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 I appreciate you calling in on this day. I really, really do, and we'll, we'll stay in touch, not to worry, okay? Right. And, Governor, we're neighbors here. There's a big tree hanging over the street today. I hope you could do something about that, all right? <laughs> I heard a crash last night. We <laughs> had the blue lights going all right. night long. So, uh. Yeah, I mean, that was a little too Halloween-y for me. Thanks for calling in, though. Thanks so much, sir. Thank you, sir. Colin, great to talk to you. John, right. I hope I see you soon. We'll see you soon. We'll catch up. Thanks, Ned. So the good news is you guys don't have to do endorsements today, maybe. Or or maybe you do, actually. Um, um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't. You didn't bring endorsements, right? Yeah. We can always make some up. Right. Uh, no, actually, I think maybe what we'll do now is go to um, uh, our news director, Jeff Cohn. Uh, where is he? He's here somewhere, right? When my kids were little, they didn't really understand who John Dankosky was. They'd heard me talk about my new boss. They'd heard him on the radio, but in their minds, he was actually two people. John and Kosky, like Starsky and Hutch or Batman and Robin. One year around holiday time, we were talking in the car about ways my kids could surprise me at work. The idea was my wife would bring the girls to the office like presents. John would take care of the rest. She'd just leave you in a box? No, she'll bring me in. John Dancock, you'll find me a big box and put me in one. Because to them, it felt like John could do that sort of thing, make magic. My kids didn't really know him, but they felt like they did because we were public radio listeners. I was a new public radio reporter, and he was ever-present. John was, to them, something bigger than the man himself. To me, he's a mentor and a boss and an editor and a friend— He's a conductor on our office lunch train. He once threw taffy when he was mad. Anyhow, the point is that while John is in fact human, there's a superhuman side to him. That's the magic part that happens when you're smart, talented, compassionate, and on the radio. It's what makes him both John Dankosky and John and Kosky. You'll miss him. We'll miss him. So uh, we should say, actually, that Jeff's kids are really famous because of this children's book that he wrote about them. And just to even use tape of them, we had to go through CAA, the, who represents them now. It was like very, you know. They're kind of a big deal. It was. You know, it was, this is like, you know, I had to work with an IP lawyer. It was, it's not fun anymore. All the kind of joy has kind of gone out of this. So um, we have a minute or two here. You know, maybe you'd like to – I don't know. I, you've already had a chance to reminisce a little bit or talk a little bit on, on some Rush shows. Songs, but, yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, or, thank you for playing the Rush before. I, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what. And I've, I've had a chance over the course of the last couple of weeks to uh, say thanks to a whole lot of people. And I, so I'm not going to get all choked up and do a whole bunch of things because many of those people I'm going to continue to see an awful lot of. Um, I'm going to tell a quick story that some people in the office have heard before. I, about 10 years or so ago, I spent some time looking for other work because, you know, every once in a while you get a little itch and you want to try something new. And Gene Amatruda, uh, who basically makes this place go, he's the uh, operations manager of everything. He's the only person who knows how this place runs. Gene stopped me and said, John, you, you can't leave because you won't see how it all turns out. And I honestly stayed for a long time. Uh, in part because of that. Um, 
I really love you folks, and thank you for all the time. Uh, I think it turned out great, and I'm not going very far. Don't worry. Uh, thank you for giving me time to talk with you on the radio today. Thanks for, uh, for all the fun, and thanks for keeping all those awful, awful clips. I really do appreciate it. <laughs> We're, you know, we're not quite done yet, but we, I would, oh, we'll God. say that listening to all this, well, I hope we're not quite done yet because I've got like seven minutes on the clock. So. Um, I hope we're not quite done yet. Um, and you are crying. And so uh, – I'm trying not yeah. to. It does sort of make you realize though, you know, um, I mean I, I am now pretty convinced that I just have to die doing this job because I will not go through what he's going through today, right? Um, you chat. <laughs> well, I, I, I would take care of some stuff. Well, that that, I, I, that actually came up this week as we were kind of getting ready for this. I at one point said to to my producers, uh, Jonathan and, and Betsy Kaplan, on my last day, I'm just starting to think of some of the things that will probably happen to me, you know, uh, if there's a last show like this one. Uh, and uh, your name did <laughs> at that point. I mean, there were other names that came up, but I think yours might have come up first. And um, But I mean, I think the other thing is that you've managed to spread out your uh, sense of, you know, my frailties over the course of our acquaintanceship and all of your other appearances uh, here on the show. So it won't all pile up at the, at the end. It's good to no have a Carolyn. That's important, though. Yeah. You've got to have somebody like that. Right. So I'm actually sort of vamping a little bit because there's one more thing that needs to happen, uh, which I'm hoping is going to happen. So, uh, so Sam, what are you going to be talking about on the Culture Docs this week? Do you know yet? Um, I don't think we've actually addressed Joker yet, and we'll definitely really? be touching on uh, Watchmen. And I'm probably going to do, even though it's after Halloween, a little wrap-up because I do that annual you know, 31 horror films, one for each night of the month of October. Uh, so I'll do a little bit of a wrap-up of that probably. Uh, the, uh, Joker, which is – it's also not the Joker. It's Joker. I, I have to keep Joker, remembering yes, this. Yeah. Joker is now the number one R-rated movie of all time in terms, I guess, what? in terms of ticket sales and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's really? true. Um, uh, so um, I can also restate uh, some earlier plugs. Uh, on Friday of no- November 22nd, John Dankosky will be moderating the Connecticut Forum. Uh, the topic is climate change. He'll be talking about climate change and what we can do about it. Uh, the uh, panelists include Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, Gina McCarthy, uh, and David Wallace-Wells uh, in December over the two weekends leading up to Christmas. Uh, he will be the narrator uh, for a program of seasonal music called Christmas Angelicus. Uh, it's a concert by the Joint Choir of Chorus Angelicus and Gaudiamus uh, and takes place in beautiful cathedrals all around Litchfield and Hartford counties. That actually really does sound really nice. Uh, also, I want to mention we are having our uh, 10th anniversary party. The Colin McEnroe Show has turned 10 in the middle of all this. Uh, and um, on Wednesday, November 13th at Black Eyed Sally's in Hartford, uh, we will be having a party. You're invited. Anybody can come. Uh, tickets are $25 and then they include a drink and maybe a little bit of Black Eyed Sally's food and there will be a little bit of fun on stage. Uh, you can get your tickets right now uh, on the WNPR.org homepage. Uh, that's WNPR.org. So you can get the tickets right there. So um, I have a, like a <laughs> really have kind of a bad feeling. <laughs> the last thing that's supposed to happen oh, no. is not going to happen. <laughs> no. I'm just uh, looking at the board. There's a call that's supposed to come in. and But that's sort of – that is the joy but, of live radio. That's why we have all these great outta- outtakes yeah. <laughs> of, of both of us losing it in various situations. Well, and I, I said this on the on the show the other day when we were signing off on the wheelhouse. You know, Colin has taught me an awful lot about how to do radio the right way. And I – when by, I By negative example. Well, but no, but this is a very <laughs> good example do. because I think when you grow up doing public radio, there's the sense that you're going to do a thousand takes until it gets exactly right and you're going to sound like this and then the next thing is going to sound like this and it's all going to be very civilized and the idea that you can be 
a little frail or you can not know what's going to happen next or that it can sound a little strange at times and there's some dead air, this is good. I mean, this program is the only program of its kind in America that in the middle of the day takes an hour to be kind of an experimental piece of radio. Nobody else does this. Everybody else does a little test case for what they should put on the radio at one o'clock in the afternoon. And this place didn't. And so uh, that's probably the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm proudest of among, among a few things that I created. Getting Colin McInerney to come over here and actually start a program is one of the things that I'm so, so happy about. And I'm so glad that it's turned out so, so well and so strangely over all these years. The uh, Yeah, there was a, a moment early on where I'd been on the air for about a couple of months and John, as he did periodically, would t- stop in and say, uh, oh, never mind. Actually, this last thing is happening, I think. Uh, uh, yes, it is happening. All right. Uh, maybe the most uh, difficult interviews, uh, the biggest uh, you know, one-on-ones that John Dankosky has done over the years are with this man, Daniel Malloy. Welcome back to our airwaves. <laughs> Well, it's nice to to be with you, and it's nice to be uh, saluting John on a day like this. As he has an admirer in Maine. I, thank you so much, Governor. It was so good to sit sit across from you and talk so many times. I I, I actually kind of miss it. Do you miss it at all? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to not think? Do you, do you want to think about no, that I, at all? I, I, listen, I, I you know I'm, I, I I think you're you're about to undergo an adjustment. I, but I, I live in the future. I never live in the past. And uh, as much as I enjoyed uh, doing the things that we did together and the discussions we had and the, and the, and the things that we had to accomplish, my administration had to accomplish, um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm on to other things and, uh, and you're going to, you're going to make that adjustment as well. Yeah. And, and I, I hear Maine's nice. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll head up that way. <laughs> Maine is very nice, and 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 we we need to import additional talent. So yeah. you should you know get on uh, ninety five and come on up this way. I, I I may just do that, paying paying some tolls along the way. Thank you, Governor. Thanks for calling in. I, I do I do miss those conversations. Tolls, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 how are you doing? Uh, who cares how I'm doing today? This this is not a day about me. Uh, but but I certainly miss you, and stop by sometime, or or, or I'll come up there. I, 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 I was always a good target. <laughs> no, I'm sorry you see our relationship oh. that way. But anyway, we have to say goodbye. Thanks Thank very you, much. Governor. We've been talking I to the appreciate. 13th Chancellor of the University of Maine System. And until this past January, the 88th Governor of Connecticut. I, I was hoping very much that that would be the very last thing that happened today. It almost <laughs> fell right off the edge of the table, the way things do. But thanks very much to Carolyn Payne and Sam Hatch. Listen to the Culture Dogs on Saturday night. Go see uh, her very unusual version of the Nutcracker when it gets going in the holidays uh, coming up. And, of course, follow John Dankosky wherever he goes.